For every hour you commute by bicycle, you add an hour onto your life. Your total commute time is zero. You're not spending any time commuting if you're going to get all that time back at the end of your life. <laughs> to calculate the time that you spend commuting to work, you have to include your work hours that you're putting in to pay for your car, to pay for tolls, to pay for repairs, to pay for tires, to pay for oil changes, parking tickets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you add that on, that time, onto all the commute time, it's taking you longer than it would if you just took your bike or even if you took your bike into the Metrolink and did part ways on bike and part ways uh, in public transportation. Real time driving is slower than your time cycling. I'm with Mark Kramer, the author of Old Man on a Green Bike, Chronicles of a Self-Serving Environmentalist. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I uh, had a chance to do some uh, cycling in, in L.A. Uh, County uh, yesterday and the day before, so I'm feeling good. Where do you live? Well, actually, we live part of the, most of the year we live in Paris, uh, uh, and then part of the year we live in La Paz, Bolivia, which is really the interesting part of the cycling because you're 12,000 feet above sea level. Any flat street is never going where you want to go. Everything is up, down, and the, the gradients are steep. They got no bike lanes, and most drivers don't even know what to do when they see a, a, a cyclist in front of them. So it's a great place to try. It gives me a chance that it, uh, to prove to the rest of the more normal cities that if I can handle bicycle com uh. commuting in La Paz, at the age of 74, then it can be done in any city around the world. So now you've biked in La Paz, and you do La Paz every? Every year. Every year. For mm -hmm. how long? Uh, six weeks. How did, you, how did that become your, your migration pattern? Well, uh, my wife has extended family, both in California and uh, Bolivia. And so uh, we decided to uh, make it our part-time home. And uh, we'd lived there before, back in the 90s. I was a journalist for five years, and I, I missed it very much. So, But uh, coming back to do, it, do cycling there was a real adventure. And you, so you, you've biked, you bike all the time in La Paz, and it's 12,000 feet elevation. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that the riding is steep, or is everything at the same elevation up that high? Okay, here's what happens. Uh, imagine if you were at the Grand Canyon looking down, and instead of just uh, rocks and river and uh, sagebrush, you saw a whole city down there. That's the way La Paz is. There's a, you land uh, in the high plain, which is called El Alto. That's a city above La Paz, which is 13,000 feet above civil, sea level, but it's flat. <laughs> so it's actually easier to cycle at 13,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And then you descend into the city, and there's probably, I've counted at least seven different canyons that spread out from the original canyon, which is the center of La Paz. In, in fact, the residents call it the hole uh, because you're going down into a deep hole. And uh, that's where, uh, <laughs> that was the challenge. So the difference in elevation between the mountains and the city is, is very steep? Well, in, in fact, uh, the mountains are even farther above El Alto. Uh, I've done some hiking up there, 17,000 feet of sea level. And uh, you could see it sort of uh, 
sad that they're losing some of their glaciers. We even had a water problem because the glacier that was supposed to serve where we were living had died. And uh, so for a few months there, there was a problem with water. Uh, they resolved it because they, they fixed things very well in Bolivia. But uh, uh, you, so you, essentially, you have mountain bike. You have a culture of mountain bikers who bike into in the hills and the foothills. Then you have uh, a culture in El Alto, which is a high city above La Paz, where you get uh, maybe 10, 15% of the population that uses a bicycle. Then you go down into the hall, which is re the, really La Paz, and uh, they've been trying. There are some group, groups of people like Critical Mass La Paz and other bicycle organizations that are trying to get people into commuting. They're lobbying, and I participated with them. They're lobbying the... Um, uh, the transportation director, the mayor, and uh, they have gotten a ciclovia every Sunday, for example. They close two parts of the city. Yeah. Uh, they have gotten support for when they do rides for critical mass. The city actually allows them to block traffic and allows them to, to I don't know how they do that. I rode with them a couple of times, and they take children there, and they're so well uh, organized that uh, it, on places that you and I might look at and say, how are you going to do it? But they, they get the job done. So they have a lot of support. But the city itself is just afraid. The, uh, the architect for the Department of uh, Transportation, I visited her once. She showed me the, uh, in her computer the gradients of certain places, and she says, to me, well, where are we going to do a, a, bike, uh, a bike lane in these places? <laughs> and frankly, they confessed that they were very concerned about the safety of the inhabitants and about their reputation if somebody uh, uh, got, got into a crash. Or, or, and so they have in all their city plans, they have bike lanes, and they want to do it. But they need more people out there to prove to them that they can do it. And their, their attitude is, well, the people in critical mass are mainly uh, good athletes, younger people, and but we, we need to have the general population do it. And so we need ordinary people to prove that it can be done. And so I volunteered as, as a guinea pig to be one of those ordinary people. I did cycle, for example, from La Paz, from El Alto for, at 13,000, I cycled all the way down to 12,000 uh, uh, to 11,500, which is the lower part of La Paz. And it was incredibly beautiful. But the problem is that if you look over at the glaciers or at the uh, canyons, then you're not going to see a pothole in front of you and you'll go tumbling into the cemetery below and you'll... Kill two birds with one stone, mm -hmm. with dying and burial in, in one in one <laughs> step. So uh, you, you have to be careful not to be too in awe of your surroundings, mm -hmm. and you also have to do what I call uh, on-the-spot driver ed, uh, which means that you have to educate the drivers, especially minibus drivers, truck drivers. They never see bicyclists bicyclers on these roads. You have to establish eye contact contact with them. Try to communicate with them silently for, uh, with your arms so that they see that you belong on that road as much as they do. 
And uh, that's, the, that's the challenge. They do have, like I say, they have bike paths and bike lanes set aside in their uh, mock-ups for their city planning. Just need more people on there, out there to, to show them it could be done. Hmm. So how many people in La Paz, roughly? A million people in La Paz, another million up above in El Alto, it, which is a, a migrant city, I say internal migrant, because a lot of indigenous Aymaras, Aymara is one of the several indigenous cultures of Bolivia, they call it plurinational state, uh, that they settled in, in uh, El Alto, it's a really interesting place, mm-hmm. and it's flat, and uh, from there you can go to the highest lake in the world, uh, Lake Titicaca, you can go to the Peruvian border, there's all kinds of uh, bike touring areas too. I try to concentrate more on the on the commuting, but I've done some touring as as well. And the bike touring would have the same challenges. Well, uh, now here's here's what happens. Uh, when I first got there, then when I first got my my bike, and a lot of family members were ganging up on me, telling me, "Hey, Mark, don't don't do that, don't do that." When I first got that bike, I visited a mechanic. He helped me uh, pick out a good bike, a good one. He said, don't buy an expensive bike until you know what you're comfortable with, and then I'll help you buy, uh, move up. Hmm. So uh, he helped me choose a bike. Then I started. Can I in, ask about that bike? Uh, well, it's called uh, Santur, and it's one of the cheapest bikes in, in Bolivia. Uh, but he told me that of all the, uh, the low-end bikes, this is the best one. And if I needed any upgrading, I could do it. The brakes have been incredibly good. Haven't had any mechanical trouble with this bike for three three consecutive years. So uh, so far, I haven't changed it for something else. Not yet. Hmm. And so, my first step, I had a plan, a uh, long-term plan. First step was to learn to climb because even if I could go do the downhills, I want to do the uphills too. So uh, from our apartment. I, um, I, what I did was have incremental climbs. The first time I climbed, I only went one kilometer. And I said, oh my God, how am I gonna do this? I was out of breath, uh, the, the altitude. I hadn't adjusted yet to the altitude. Then I extended it to two kilometers. Then I, I went to a, a football stadium, a soccer stadium at two and a half kilometers. Finally, I got actually to four, going up four, five, six kilometers upward and it was a total of, uh, let's see, how many meters? 300 meters of, uh, of gradient uh, of, of elevation. Mm-hmm. So that was proving to myself I could do that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, I, I wanted to do the downhills. Of course, the downhill from there is very easy, but I wanted to do some of the more challenging downhills where um, uh, the curves were, were, uh, were more spectacular. And for that, I did. I went to El Alto and went downhill. And final, And I also had two other tasks. One was to ride with the critical mass group, and the other was to prove to the um, director of transportation. I actually mapped out a, uh, a bike route from the two centers of the of the city: the the up, upper La Paz Center business center and the lower La Paz business center. And I, I did a technical rides where I had to find out, well, where are you going to put the bike lane? Uh, there were some places where the only possibility, since you have a cliff on one side going up and you have a cliff on the other side going down, 
the only possibility and a, and a very narrow road with belching buses going up and down, the only possibility would be to actually put it on a, a sidewalk where there were, there were very few pedestrians. I know that's a no-no for a lot of purists, but... Um, Not for me. Okay, all <laughs> right. We have so many unused sidewalks in L.A. Oh, you sure, you sure do. I feel like they should be turned, they should be given new life. There you do. Well, well in France, what they do with a, uh, a unused or a very rarely used sidewalk is they still put a sign up saying pedestrians have the right of way. And so I have pictures of that one. And, and, and it turned out that some of my bike routes coincided with some of the routes that they already had planned for in the, in the Department of Transportation. I must say, the, the, so the critical mass people and various other bike organizations, because there's a lot of them, uh, they lobbied uh, the city and they got two things. They got, you're allowed now to take your bike into the Teleferico, which is the aerial cable car system. I think there's about nine lines already. There's going to be 12 lines. Uh, and so I can go from the lower part of La Paz taking two different aerial cables and get up to El Alto, and uh, you're allowed to take your bike into the aerial cable cars wow. to go up. That's not a solution for all the uphills because there's no way to avoid climbing, but it certainly makes a, a huge difference, and there are some bike commuters who will go up in the teleferico and they'll go down to work. Then they have another type of transportation, uh, which uh, in the, originally they had basically a, an anarchistic transportation system of all private, private companies, private individuals, s sort of a, a pre-Uber type of situation, and uh, the city modified that by establishing public buses. And on those public buses, they put uh, bike racks, the way they have in L.A. Mm. And with those bike racks, uh, it, it really makes a huge difference. So I can travel from a lower part of La Paz to the center of La Paz, put my bike on a rack. I don't put it on the rack. Their instructions, their uh, drivers, they have the driver has to get out and put your bike on the rack. So those two things, the teleferico and the, the bus system, which they call Puma Katari, has made an enormous difference in the potential for this city being uh, friendly to bicy bicycle commuters. Well, are they just starting this um, bike friendliness? Well, that was about, let's see, give it three, three, some, three years ago, two and a half years ago that they started doing this. Before then, go back 25 years, and they had a bike lane. But at that time, that bike lane went nowhere. It went for a distance, but there was no destiny to it. Mm -hmm. And so it fell into misuse. They began to call it a white elephant. And people, uh, officials said, well, well, we don't have a lot of money here. How are we going to make a bike lane if nobody uses it? But now it, I discovered that lane. It's very, there's a few remaining signs that you can hardly read them and the paint is so, uh, you can't see it. If you're, if you're a bike rider, you can see the paint say, making it a bike lane, but anybody else wouldn't even know it's there. So when I found that one, I considered myself like a, a bicycle archaeologist mm -hmm. discovering an ancient bike lane. But now that lane goes to places. You can go from the university in the upper part to the university in the lower part. You can go from uh, commerce to commerce. So now that same lane is um, is useful, and I think uh, sooner or later they they promised uh, 
the critical mass people that they would have these uh, bike lanes. And so I'm waiting for this to happen. Are you? Did you get into touch with all these people because your your book that you're writing? Well, actually, uh, bef- the the book was developing organically for 19 years uh, because of uh, uh, by my initial bike bicycle commuting began in. Um, uh, Paris. When I arrived there, the city hall was encouraging biking, and so I got involved. And I saw that there was a, a group called Velo Rusion, which is a play on Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, where they went on out on uh, monthly rides, and they had a police ec- escort. And I, I went with them one Saturday, and. Now, we're, we're changing cities here for a moment. Um, they, they were chanting slogans along the way, stopping to talk with people, and they ended up on a beautiful type of uh, narrow street that you would see in a Utrillo painting. And there was a Volkswagen that was parked partly on the, on the street and partly on the sidewalk. Now, they consider themselves defenders of public transportation, defenders of pedestrians, and defenders of uh, bicycle commuters and bicycle riders. So about eight or nine of them got out. We stopped. They lifted that bike, that uh, car up, and they they plopped onto the road to the street. The police, two police escorts who were also on bicycle watched and didn't say anything. I think they enjoyed the... uh, <laughs> they enjoyed the scene. So uh, I was impressed by these people because I wasn't really an environmentalist because I, for a long time I felt like um, the environment, everything was uh, glo- gloomy and uh, there was no uh, sense of humor and uh, people were, uh, had a grave voice in their tone, tone of uh, speaking. But then I saw, hey, this group is a joyous group, the joie de vivre, they call it. And they're having fun, but they're dedicated environmentalists. And that got me interested in being an environmentalist, too. And when they showed that you could actually enjoy doing it and you could have fun doing it and it would be good for your health and you could save money doing it by biking instead of driving or or uh, taking other transportation... Uh, that's where I call it self-serving environmentalist in the book because it's legitimate self-interest. It's not doing a sacrifice. And if more people realize that it's not a sacrifice, it's for our own best interest, for our health, for our economy, uh, for our well-being, uh, and it's fun, then maybe we can get more people to become environmentalists. So I think this is uh, the message. Uh, the bike is sort of a medium to ride into a new zone of uh, of joyous environmentalism, and there's something else. You, yeah, the bike is a is an interesting the way the bicycle the way it brings together different important things into one mm-hmm. activity. You know, health and and not doing destructive things to right. the, to the planet, and um, you know, community and uh, for some reason other things t- tend to sort of seem to be part of the bike culture you know like for me it's i've always just noticed that there's there's beer and there's vegetarianism and just things <laughs> maybe it's just things that i'm interested in but uh well uh, i've uh, i've tried my best to be a vegetarian 
<laughs> but when people invite me somewhere and I, I eat what they serve, but otherwise I am, if I can say that, again, I'm not a purist. Uh, but in, in La Paz, uh, I noticed that many of the, um, the mountain bikers are uh, vegetarians, and, and some of the, there's a, um, a cafe in La Paz, in Lower La Paz, that serves vegetarian food that w- is a hangout for, for bicycle riders. So I think there is something to that. Well, really good. I, I thought maybe it was just I was projecting. But, mm-hmm. but so And um, you brought up something interesting about how you save time mm-hmm. in your book. Oh, well, let me tell you, there's two ways you save time. There's a study out of Holland, but it was published in, a, uh, in an international journal of, uh, of medicine where it shows that for every hour of bicycling that you do, you add an hour onto your life. Unless you do something stupid like falling in the shower. <laughs> but I mean, if you're uh, in, as a statistic, that's what happens. So if you look at it that way. Could you repeat the statistic? Okay, the statistic is for every hour that you bicycle, bicycle the statistic is on bicycle commuters, by the way, okay? For every hour you commute by bicycle, you add an hour onto your life. What? What? I just. I. Think it's a, that's a nice statistic. So where? Where did it come from? Uh, I don't have. It's, sorry to say, folks, your, it's in my book, and book. I don't have it in front of me in the notes. But it's um, It's a. It was a, a study done in in Holland, but it was published in the USA, if I recall, and okay. it's in the introduction to the book. I don't remember the, the exact place, but believe me, there have been several studies that have similar conclusions. So in mm-hmm. fact, if this is true, uh, then it means that your total commute time is zero. You're not spending any time commuting if you're going to get all that time back at the end of your life. Mm-hmm. And the other uh, statistic that shows how fast a bicycle is compared to a car is that, um, and this is worked out by Ivan Illich, the great philosopher who died in the early 2000s, who wrote a book called Energy and Equity. And Illich explained that to calculate the time that you spend commuting to work, you have to include the time, your work hours that you're putting in to pay for your car, to pay for tolls, to pay for repairs, to pay for tires, to pay for oil changes, to pay for, for uh, 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 parking tickets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you add that on, that time, onto all the commute time, you're actually, it's taking you longer to commute than it would if you just took your bike or even if you took your bike into the Metrolink and did part of the part ways on bike and part ways uh, in public transportation, and so uh, the calculation is there. There's another transportation expert who followed up on that. His name is Paul Tranter, Australian. He's got a technical study where he evaluates the real cycling time in different cities and the real car tr- time in different cities. I think L.A. had something. The average time of a car was something like 11 miles per hour if you factored in the time you spent paying for that car by working. Oh. And so the uh, miles per hour 
in the car. Oh, excuse me, that was uh, 11, 11, mi- 11 kilometers per hour, which is fewer miles per hour. It's something like nine, which means that your real-time cycl- uh, driving is slower than your, your time cycling. Can I, what, doesn't that also depend on what you make? Because if you make $300 an hour... I don't know if anybody makes three hundred dollars an hour, but if if you make, you know, a whole lot of money an hour, then I it would be different than if you made minimum wage. And Nick, that's a great point. And you know what I'm going to do when I get back? <laughs> I'm going to send an email to Paul Tranter <laughs> and ask him what he says about that. Okay. He had, he probably just picked picked a, a, the average income. Mm-hmm. And so, what else do you? tackle in your book so it's is it what what is your book is it like an environmentalist and biking book or is well, it like a these are stories they're chronicles uh for example there's a couple of chapters on the safety factor and this is interesting because in europe most people don't use helmets i'm not recommending that to anybody here uh but uh maybe because it's a slower pace uh you know, we we Rather than taking a congested street, we 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 prefer going a longer distance to 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 avoid the congestion, uh, what have you. But um, the argument for the helmet is that there are more deaths of pedestrians than there are of bicycle riders, statistically, per capita. There are more deaths of automobile passengers than bicycle riders per capita. Hmm. So, okay, let's have bicycle riders wear helmets, but car passengers should wear helmets and pedestrians should wear helmets as well because hmm. they're, they're taking a risk too. I've seen this here and, and people turning uh, uh, in, in L.A. that it's not so, it's not so safe. So um, I look into the safety factor and also uh, the, the question of the door zone getting doored. I have some stories of that because in my early years of commuting, remember this is 19 years of bicycle commuting, in the early years uh, they told us, okay, you got to look to your right to make sure nobody's getting out of their, their car door. Well, it just so happens that there's what I call the 97% rule and that says that 97% of the time you can engineer safety, but 3% of the time most real crashes and accidents happen in those last 3% that you can't engineer. Uh, I learned this from air traffic, traffic controllers. I worked a little with them in English uh, language uh, tutoring in, in, in France. So it's at 3%, that's how do you engineer for that? So in the dooring, for example, the first time I was doored, I was looking to my right, being very careful, watching any movement, and I got doored from the left that some guy broke the, broke the law and, and got out of his car on the le- uh, on, in, within the traffic. Hmm. Another time, I was going in a theater district, going up a hill in, uh, in Paris, Taxi driver was parked way away from the curb. And so I figured, well, he's parked there. Passenger is going to get out to go to the theater. And so I I wasn't worried. Well, door opens. Just when I'm passing by, boom, I go down. 
uh, I don't remember what happened. And if I'd have died, it would have fulfilled Woody Allen's wish that uh, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happened because I don't remember <laughs> exactly what happened. I just found myself on the ground. The lady getting out to go to the theater stepped over my body. Oh my God. She could have been stepping over a dead body to, to, get, <laughs> to get in line. Whoa. And I look up at the theater lights uh, from my unreserved seat on the pavement <laughs> uh, and the taxi driver apologizes profusely to me. Uh, but this was something that, impo this is one of the 3% situations that are fluke accidents, but they're inevitable. And it's very hard to engineer against them. And the third time was really bizarre because the third time I'm going up uh, Boulevard de Clichy, some people may know that if you've been to Paris, and I was following two police cops. So the, they were on bicycles, two bicycle cops. So there, it was a line of three people in, in a procession. So I never felt safer in my life, man, because following two cops on bikes, what's, what can happen to me? So we're passing by a mail truck. truck. First cop goes by, real good. Second cop goes by. And then I go by, and the mailman opens the door, and bam, I go down. Cops look back, and they grin. It was almost like they had a sting operation against me. Wow. And I don't remember what they look like, but I remember their smile on their faces. Wow. And uh, now, he, how could anybody uh, prevent this unless you, well, now, in the last 10 or 12 years, I haven't gone down at all because I take super precautions now. And the problem is I prefer to go out in the flow of traffic than to go near any car. Uh, but uh, my point is that when I, when I look at the safety factors, I see that uh, you can engineer all you want. You can have protected bike lanes, which is really one of the safest ways to get more people out on, on the road and commuting. Uh, but there will always be some situations when uh, they're unanticipated. And you learn, and I think I've learned, it took, I'm a slow learner, mm -hmm. but I think I've learned since then because I haven't gone down, haven't had any accident for a long time. Well, a couple things. Protected cycling, none of those things would have happened. Yeah, you're right. And I wrote that in my book, exactly. I wrote it in my book. Uh, another... Another thing that I, I brought up, and here's my question to you, okay. Uh, there's a, the Federal Association of, Vi of Bicyclists in, in France. They publish a brochure about bicycle safety. And they're talking, that brochure specifically is making a right turn for, uh, when there might be a, a car or a truck uh, and you're in the blind spot. And what are you supposed to do? to make sure you can establish contact with that driver or wait or move forward so you're turning ahead of him so he doesn't or you're going straight ahead of him before he turns. So they explain all those safety rules and they have pictures on there. Now the picture, this is a safety brochure in France by the leading bicycle association, national association, and the picture of the bicycle rider, he's not wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. 
So we got a cultural thing going on here, which is interesting to look into. And I hope maybe some of your listeners contact me when you come to Paris. I'll take them riding, and I would like to get their their on-site observations about the cultural differences. So would you call yourself a vehicular cyclist? Uh, you like to ride like a vehicle? I, I, I know what you're saying. Uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I morph in, from one into the other. I would prefer not to be a vehicular cyclist. However, if, if there's a door zone and I have to go into the traffic and, and say this is my route as much as yours, then I will become a vehicular cyclist. And in La Paz, Bolivia, uh, many times you have no choice. So, um, yes. so I think uh, in the situations where, where I live, uh, I, I really have no try. I have to. I, I have to morph from one to the other. What about in Bolivia? Do people wear helmets there? Uh, should have brought some pictures uh, to describe to your audience. And in the critical mass uh, uh, ride, I would say about fifty percent of the people had helmets, and fifty percent did not have helmets. And there were kids there in in the in the group. Um, there was one guy wearing a Superman. Uh, shirt that did not have a helmet. He must have been about 16 years old. Uh, but uh, nobody, uh, I, I'm not, like I say, I'm not talking in favor of not wearing a helmet. I have a, I have a wonderful granddaughter who, uh, who does aerial dancing, hmm. and she doesn't wear a helmet for that. That looks scary, but she will wear a helmet when she cycles. And I have a grandson We're just learning to cycle now. Great kid. Now, his parents make sure he has helmet on every moment. So I don't don't say, hey, Zane, uh, uh, you don't have to wear a helmet. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to tell anybody not to wear a helmet. Uh, But uh, in in Europe, uh, if you look, anybody can look at videos of Copenhagen and look at commuter videos, and you'll see that I would say probably 80% of the people are not wearing helmets. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe some of that has to do with, like you were talking about in in La Paz, the familiarity of motorists with people on bikes. There have been studies that show, now I can't assure you that these are mathematically accurate, but there have been studies that show that drivers uh, give more space to bicyclers who do not have a helmet than the ones that do have a helmet. Uh, I've also heard that that drunks are attracted to bright colors. <laughs> so that if you're wearing safety reflective gear or or lights, you're actually attracting drunks. Yep. Drivers. Well, it, it's very possible. I look. Uh, I think that the arguments that they uh, some Australians give about the helmets, where they they had mandatory helmets, and then the number of cyclers went down. Uh, yes, I've heard that. I've heard right. This. So they're, they're saying that the more cyclers on the road, the less the need for a helmet. I think that if, if I were to uh, be in L.A., I think I would get a helmet. If I were to be living here and cycling every day, I would get one because here I don't feel as comfortable as I do uh, back in Paris. So are you? this is your book tour right now? Well, uh, this is sort of... Uh, initiating it's not really a book tour it is just having a good time sharing uh, sharing the ideas in the book with uh, as many people as i can 
And uh, this is actually, I just got here, and this is the first, you're the first one, uh, the first uh, program that I'm on. Here to the U.S. or L.A.? Uh, to, to L.A. and to the U.S. Oh, great. Right. Honored. Thank you. And you said in your email that you've heard the show before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, what else? What else can we... Well, okay. how do, yeah. And how do we get the book? And, you know, is it... Okay, now... book now? It's... Uh, if you can... It's, it's, it's just coming out right now. Uh, the website, just go to Old Man on a Green Bike, and you'll see the website of my publisher, uh, and uh, it'll, it'll, it'll flash right in front of you. Uh, I don't want to give too many words because then people will not write it down, but it's, it's, the publisher is Wordbound Media, Wordbound Media, and type in old, but even if you just type in Old Man on a Green Bike, it'll come out Wordbound Media, and you'll be able to see how to get that book. And uh, by the way, if I can just mention this, my dear wife is here. Uh, we, there's a companion book to this. And because uh, my, uh, my message here is human energy. And, uh, and my message is that there's something called a rebound effect that says you could get rid of all of the toxic energies or the less and put in less toxic energies uh but people if they if they get a more energy saving vehicle they'll decide to use it more or a more energy saving light bulb they'll decide to use it more it's called the rebound effect and my feeling backed up by the great ivan illich it's not i didn't develop this myself is that human energy has to be part of the equation uh for uh stopping uh, global warming or at least uh, improving the climate change situation. So in, with that, there's a companion book called Urban Everesting, which talks about climbing in urban settings and which are the best places to do climbing. Uh, and the reason I call it Everesting, there's... Uh, some bike riders who have a something called Everesting where they find a, hi a, a steep hill or a long hill and they go up and down, up and down, up and down until their elevation gain is as much as the Mount Everest. Oh, wow. And they call it Everesting. Uh, but we got a better one. We do it by on foot mainly, urban Everesting. And when Everest climbers arrive in Nepal, they, uh, they arrive at 2,800 meters, something like that. Turns out that their total elevation gain is 20,000 feet, about 6,000 meters. And so urban, and it takes them about a month because they have to stop at one base camp, stop at another base camp. It takes them, they have to go a long ways to get to the first base camp so, uh, and to uh, adapt to the altitude. So with urban Everesting, our idea is that you go to a city and you climb 20,000 meters uh, within the, the space of a month. And I put the best cities to do that in. And L.A. is among the top. It is. Yeah, absolutely, because there's so much great climbing here in, in L.A. There are, there are mountain ranges that are technically within L.A. County oh, yeah. where, you can, where you can do some great climbing. And, but we also have stair climbing as part of the formula. 
Now, in La Paz, Bolivia, there's a, a stairway that's 916 steps. So you're, uh, you're getting a lot, you're, you're gaining elevation toward your Everest, your Everest prize uh, by climbing stairway. There are more than 1,000 staircases in La Paz itself because everything is up and down. Well, L.A. is the second leading city in the USA for urban staircases. And the place I recommend for people to start is in Silver Lake, where they had Laurel and Hardy trying to deliver this piano in their classic m- movie, The Music Box, <laughs> where the piano... Uh, and that staircase still exists today, and there, there are a number of staircases all around Southern California. Uh, so you can incorporate climbing in trails or climbing in staircases, and if you, and if you end up with 20,000 20, feet, uh, you earn yourself an Everest, and uh, you, you can even uh, go have a, a, a French pastry and celebrate. One French pastry. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, d- so how long does it take? I mean, it takes a month if you're climbing actual Mount Everest. Uh, r- right. But like if you're not at high altitudes and you, know, you don't, you're well, not freezing cold, how, how long does it Well, my wife and I, we did it uh, in, in La Paz, which was 12,000 feet, up to 13,000 feet above sea level. So there was an altitude factor. But of course, there's more. Uh, in La Paz, you, you get 40% less oxygen per breath. Well, uh, So it, it is difficult, but not nearly as difficult as the altitude uh, on Everest. Uh, but in fact, um, we don't count the altitude. So if you're in sea level and you're doing, and you do 20,000 feet then I think that that's uh, you still deserve a, an award for that. Do you get an award? Do you you get all the pastry? <clears throat> you can get all the pastry you want, and you won't recover all the weight that you lost. All right. Well, great. So thank you for for coming on the show, and thank you for being a listener as well as a guest, and thank you for writing a book, and thank you for riding your bike. And Nick, uh, thanks for your show because a lot of times, uh, you know, I I need to get a positive vibe when I when I'm. Uh, breathing in pollution somewhere or I come home and I can listen to your podcast and listen to your program and uh, so I thank you too All right, Mark keep in touch and keep us up to date on your travels thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the Bike Talk if you want to hear more go to kpfk.org navigate to programs and choose Bike Talk on the Bike Talk page click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 